As the, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine drags into its seventh month, it seems clearer by the day that Putin must be afraid that he's losing. With winter approaching, he's mobilised hundreds of thousands of, uh, of Russian men to fight, often without proper equipment. He's moved troops into Belarus and he has made wild and uh, convoluted claims that Ukraine is planning to use a dirty bomb on its old people and, yes, to blame Russia in order to get more Western sympathy and support. And as you've heard previously on the program, there are commentators who are very worried we're on the brink of a nuclear crisis. But my next guest is not so sure. Gideon Rose is a distinguished fellow in the US foreign policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. And uh, he's got a book called How Wars End, While We Always Fight the Last Battle. Gideon, welcome. It's difficult for us ordinary folk to keep up with the day-by-day progress of wars. I want to zoom out and talk about wars as a concept. Now, you liken wars to chess, arguing they have a beginning, a middle and an end. The chess parallel, if you please. So, basically, the question here, as in so many wars, is... Is this about the specific circumstances of Russia and Ukraine and the leadership, or are there general patterns that are playing out here that we can see that allow you to relate it to what's happened in the past? And my research has suggests that this is indeed falling into some general patterns. Wars traditionally, like chess matches, have a beginning, a middle, and an end game. In the beginning, you engage the other party and you deploy your forces. In the middle, both sides try to fight things out. They've committed to battle and they think they can win. And at some point, the war either fades into a stalemate that's really hard to move or it goes decisively in one direction and both sides recognize that. And at that point, an end game begins in which you basically kind of understand who's going to win the war and then the question becomes the details about the end. Now, Gideon, you argued recently and cogently that the transition to a war's end game is not a military or a political event but a psychological one. Exactly. The key is... Do you think that this is not going to be something you can win by continuing to fight? As long as the belligerents believe they can affect the outcome, the basic shape of the outcome, who wins or who loses, by their own efforts, they have a strong psychological and political uh, stake in continuing to fight to affect that outcome. Nobody wants to lose, especially somebody who started the war and has to grapple with the loss or somebody who's going to be wiped out like Ukraine uh, if they if they succumb. And so the question becomes not so much just what's happening on the ground, but what do you think is going to happen next? And what we can see happening in Ukraine is the Ukrainians are better on the ground at fighting than the Russians are. They managed to hold off the Russian attack against Kiev. They managed to hold their own in the war of attrition over the summer. And then in the fall, with Western weapons and help, they've been pushing the Russians back on the ground. And my argument is that this is going to make the Russians ultimately recognize that they are losing if we can keep the pressure on. Decades ago, thanatology was very popular and I uh, dimly recall interviewing Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on the program and, of course, she was famous for her five stages of grief, denial, anger, 
bargaining, depression and acceptance. And I found it uh, fascinating that you cite Kubler-Ross. Yes. Well, the argument here is, again, since this is a psychological process, essentially Russia and Putin in particular are having to come to terms with an outcome they don't want to accept. And that's a psychological uh, mechanism that happens to all belligerents who are unsuccessful. It happened to the U.S. in Vietnam. It's happening to the Russians in Ukraine. And the first stage of that is to resist it, uh, denial. Uh, then you get very upset when you realize that it's actually happening. That's the anger. Then bargaining is when you try to essentially head it off by saying, well, I'll give you this rather than that. At a certain point, depression sets in when you realize you can't head off defeat. And then ultimately you have some kind of acceptance in which you can move forward. And what we're trying to get the Russians to do is go through those psychological changes so that they will ultimately take the kinds of steps to walk out of the conflict, withdraw, the same way the U.S. ultimately did in, in a conflict like Vietnam. This is LNL on RN, and you're hearing the fascinating views of Gideon Rose from the Council on Foreign Relations. And yes, we're talking about how wars end. Now, Gideon, you're studied how US presidents have muddled through the end game of wars. They get so focused on defeating the enemy that there is, as you say, little or no thought as to what comes next. And a recent article in Foreign Affairs, which I've just been rereading, compares Putin today to Nixon's administration towards the end of Vietnam War. Can you talk us through that? Yes. So when this war began uh, in February, everybody was shocked at how poorly the Russians seemed to have thought through the effort. Uh, they And everyone attributed this, a lot of people attributed this to specifics about Putin and his regime. Only a crazy dictator could engage in a war with no plan for victory, could have engaged in wishful thinking that, um, uh, that, that made it seem like he could take Ukraine easily. In fact, the United States... And other powers have done very similar things. We don't. We all know the, the the failed track record of American interventions in the last few decades. And we have dis, the United States has displayed. Washington has displayed a lot of similar pathologies, which leads leads me to think that it's not just purely Russia. Well, you, you cite you cite Nixon with bluster bombing and even nuclear saber rattling. Exactly. So it's not just the parallels to failing to understand that the enemy is going to resist having wishful thinking and and not having a plan for ending it. When the war in Vietnam met didn't meet American expectations, the uh, American leadership didn't just turn on a dime and walk out. They got very upset. Johnson refused to acknowledge defeat and passed it to his successor, Nixon. And when Nixon and Kissinger came in in 1969, they tried at first to achieve the same kind of goals that their predecessors had, but with intensive bluster and threats of future force. They bombed Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and they threatened nuclear action and they threatened further bombing. They did all sorts of things very similar to what the Russians are doing now in an attempt to coerce the communists and 
make them essentially stop fighting. And that's what Russia is doing now. It's being pushed back on the ground by the Ukrainians with their Western arms and help. And so they're trying to basically counter this by saying, we will destroy you, we will escalate even further. But it's kind of bluster, I think, rather than an actual plan, because there's nothing they do that will change the outcome if we can hold together and keep supplying the Ukrainians on the ground. Gideon, we've had quite a few people on the program drawing the parallels with the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 years ago this month. and uh, But it's also been argued on the program that there are probably back-channel contacts and negotiations going on at the moment. Do you believe that's the case? So there are some back-channel communications that are essentially sending the message that if you escalate to a nuclear level, it will be even worse for Russia. As uh, somebody put it to me, uh, it, it is the surest way for Russia to lose the war quickly. What you see happening now is Russia losing the war slowly. If the Russians actually used nukes, um, there would be a very dramatic escalation of Western involvement, which would help destroy Russian forces on the ground and in the region, which essentially would precipitate the very reaction that Putin is supposedly uh, fearing. And this has been communicated to the Russians. Whether they believe it or not, we don't know. But I think there's every reason to believe that they're threatening to use nukes rather than planning to, because once they were to use it, it would actually make their situation worse rather than better. We're a little Australian radio program, and it may surprise you that we once spent an hour chatting to Henry Kissinger, and the subject of the madman bomb theory came up. Can you explain that to a younger audience? Yes. So when Nixon came into power, he and Kissinger tried to beat the communists by convincing them that Nixon was so crazy and so reckless that if they didn't come to the peace table and immediately stop the war, Nixon was crazy enough to use nuclear weapons. And that was the notion that Nixon was a madman and you had to appease him for fear that he might do something crazy. And that is essentially, I believe, the same game that Vladimir Putin is playing now, which is that he is deploying the threats of nuclear weapons or most recently a dirty bomb and things like that, essentially as a tool to sow fear and distrust and worry and anxiety in Ukraine and particularly its Western supporters so that they pressure Ukraine to give in because the fearing is, oh my God, Putin is so crazy, he might just do something like this rather than concede defeat. So Moscow's nuclear threats are both a heightened form of anger and, going back to Kubler-Ross, an implicit form of bargaining. Exactly, because if you think about the bargaining aspect, the implicit form of the argument is if you don't, uh, if you give in, we won't use nukes. So it's an effect, he's almost in effect saying, I'm looking for an end game. And at this point, it's pretty clear that Moscow realizes it can't take more offensive action on the ground, and it's being pushed back slowly on the ground closer to the original start lines. So what Putin is trying to do is lock in the gains that he has already gotten. And with that, he's trying to achieve a negotiated outcome on his terms. And what he's trying to do is get into our heads by making people scared about supporting Ukraine 
for fear of what Russia might do if we continue to support the Ukrainians. I'm interested in your cautions against calling Putin evil, irrational, mad or unstable. Well, essentially, it doesn't really matter whether, I mean, evil... Quite possibly. I mean, what he's doing, uh, that, that's a moral judgment. But I don't think he's irrational in the sense that he was clearly operating under wishful thinking uh, at the beginning of the war, but many belligerents have, including Washington. And there's every reason to believe that reality is starting to sink in. And in fact, the threats that he has deployed are precisely what you would expect of somebody who is trying to escape the outcome that he sees happening on the ground. Uh, everybody can see that the Ukrainians are pushing forward and the Russian army has low morale, has uh, bad strategic leadership, and is actually losing the conventional fighting on the ground. And the question is, what can Moscow do to prevent that. He's tried to call up new forces to reinforce his lines. Um, but realistically, what he's hoping for now, what Putin is hoping for, is Western resolve to crack, whether in Europe during the winter or the United States following the Russian, uh, following the midterm elections. Now, you say in the article that the only circumstances in which Putin could use nukes would be well, at the tactical level, blowing up an aircraft carrier, but Ukraine doesn't have one of those. If Putin dropped bombs on a populated area, it would poison the very people, he says, Russia wants to liberate. Does that make Russia's nuclear weapons effectively useless in this context? So this is a very interesting question. And I think what we're seeing here in Ukraine is the same thing we've seen in a lot of conflicts from the war in Korea on, which is Ukraine, which is nuclear weapons are useful, it seems to be, for very specific purposes, preventing an opponent from attacking you and overthrowing your own country. But they're very they're useless or very hard to make. Uh, valuable if you're trying to achieve lesser goals, because the destruction they cause is just so out of whack with um, what you would try to get in the battlefield. You could imagine a situation in which the Russians could use, let's say, a small nuclear weapon um, in a demonstration effect to threaten even further use, but that in itself would suggest hesitation because they would uh, not be actually affecting the war. Again, it would be, look what we're gonna do next. Well, if you didn't do it now, why should we trust you'll do it next? If there were certain kinds of war, let's say if this was the Iraq war, if this was World War II, you could imagine small nuclear weapons being used in a militarily effective way to take out an aircraft carrier or a, a an army of tanks in the desert, or if you were in a pass in Afghanistan and you had to sort of you know block the Khyber Pass, those things nuclear weapons could at least conceivably be good for. But in a con conflict like Ukraine, which is small units fighting over disputed territory in close quarters, any use, whether it's a dirty bomb or a tactical nuclear weapon, would actually harm the very people that Russia is supposedly trying to rescue. So it's highly unlikely that, almost hard to imagine, that Russia would go beyond the threats to actually use nuclear weapons. But what they're getting from the threats is heightening the worry and anxiety about supporting Ukraine and leading people to pressure the government in Kiev to give in. And that's what we saw quite clearly in the latter stages of Vietnam. 
Yes, and actually, it's interesting because we have two different kinds of, uh, of Vietnam parallels going on right now. The Americans got very upset with what was going on in Vietnam and put pressure on their government to back out of the war. And the Democrats actually, the Democratic Congress, uh, put restrictions on aid to uh, to South Vietnam, which ultimately helped lead to its defeat. We see elements of that in both the Democratic and Republican Party in the U.S. now. But the irony here is it's Russia this time that is being the stupid invader. It's Russia this time that is losing the war on the ground because it's provoked nationalism against it. So the real parallel to Vietnam here is that we are supporting the people resisting. And the real parallel to you know Iraq and elsewhere is that we are supporting people resisting the invasion. And in this case, the Ukrainians are actually doing a very good job mobilizing, you might say, liberal nationalism uh, to resist and fight off their uh, their brutal invader. And so it's a much better position to be in supporting the people who are fighting back than it is trying to take over the country. You end your article by calling in question the entire logical of nuclear weapons as a deterrent, which is why countries say they need them and make the point that they're dangerous and expensive to develop and keep and everyone knows they can't be used. So the deterrent value is void. Well, I think they are useful for certain kinds of deterrence. They're very useful for deterring a full-scale major attack on your country because if you can threaten to destroy the invader, they are highly unlikely to invade. If Ukraine had a very strong nuclear deterrent originally, Putin would have thought twice about invading. However, what I think they are not particularly useful for is actual war fighting, and I think that the intricacies of nuclear strategy that people were brought up with in previous decades in which minor variations of the uh, configuration of your nuclear forces is going to affect the specifics of the enemy's calculations. That, I think, is vastly overblown. What we've seen here, for example, is it's whatever is going to happen with nuclear weapons in Ukraine, it's not going to be because we have X number of warheads versus Y number of warheads of this type versus that type. The, 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 de the notion that the details of specific nuclear forces are anything uh, significant compared to, let's say, whether Ukraine gets the HIMARS uh, rocket systems or other kinds of aid is just silly. So I think this should make us realize that nuclear weapons are separate from the rest of our armed forces, and we should not expect them to play much of a role in an actual combat. Is Zelensky playing a good chess game? I think Zelensky's playing an amazing chess game. It's funny because uh, if you had said, oh, this guy is an amateur, a comedian, uh, not a professional politician, and, you know, it was almost a joke before he got in. But you're seeing actual leadership. This is one of the first leaders who's actually deploying rhetoric uh, and personal heroism during wartime in a level that is truly Churchillian. If you study his speeches, every night he gives a speech and they're actually really good. They're quite inspiring. And I think the Ukrainian people have taken their cues from the leadership in as the Taliban were approaching Afghanistan last summer, the uh, uh, the president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, turned tail and fled. He's now living in nice comfort in the UAE while the Afghans suffer because his government collapsed and his army collapsed. Ukra Zelensky was offered the same deal 
we could help get you out. And his famous response was, I don't need, I need ammunition, not a ride. The fight is here. And it seemed like that was a line from central casting. It seemed like it was written, but he's continued to do that and he's delivered it well. And he's actually walking the walk. So I think his inspiring, we're seeing here how much things like leadership and morale matter because that's what's helping the Ukrainian forces do better on the battlefield pound for pound. Gideon, we're almost out of time. Your book, on how wars end was critical of the ways in which US presidents have ended them. How do you judge Biden so far? Do you think he's so, got a plan for an end game? So it's not so much clear that they have a big plan for the end game, but I think in general they've done a quite good job of helping to coordinate support for Ukraine without getting too much in the way. The Biden administration doesn't always talk a great game. They sometimes, like so many governments, sort of uh, run their mouths off a little bit. But they've been very useful in not stepping on the story and in trying to thread the path that's very delicate between supporting Ukraine without provoking Russia unduly. It is key to say that there are indeed red lines that the United States and the West and the Ukrainians should follow in order to avoid creating a situation in which Putin might feel like he himself is threatened. So things like not having a no-fly zone, not having direct involvement of NATO troops in the war are good things because they keep this to the Ukrainian theater. And so the Biden administration, I think, has been pretty good about supplying Ukraine while avoiding the red lines. You can quibble on the details, but I think so far they're doing a good job. Now, you're a scholar, not a clairvoyant, but what do you expect will happen in the coming months and years as Putin traverses the five stages of grief? So the interesting question now is who will have the greater will to stick to this. Basically, you have a race going on between the collapsing Russian support for the war uh, physically and politically at home and the collapsing support for the, or the potential collapsing support for the war in Europe and the United States as its costs continue as it drags on. There's very little reason to believe that the Ukrainians themselves have anything other than a desire to keep going. They are suffering extraordinarily, but they have not broken their resolve and they want to keep fighting. The question is, as if winter gets really cold and dark, will the European support flag? If the Republicans come into Congress, will they flag? And what we're, I think that what you're going to see pretty much is a continuation of the current uh, situation with gradual progress on the ground by the Ukrainians which ultimately will lead Moscow to ask for a pullback. But it's going to take a while, and it's not likely to have any kind of immediate resolution anytime soon. Gideon, thanks for that. Gideon Rose is the Mary and David Boys Distinguished Fellow in US Foreign Policy at the Council of Foreign Relations and the author of How Wars End. ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.